It's been said that some people will stand bravely when shot at, but they will collapse when they're laughed at. And so the enemy uses mocking, he uses ridicule, not only to dishearten us, but to make us doubt and to discourage us. And you have that uh, voice that seems to intrude into your head, which says, uh, you're such a feeble Christian. Maybe you are a believer, but there is nothing of any substance that you can do for God. You're no use. You're no use in terms of serving in the church. You're no use in terms of evangelism. Leave that to other people. Or maybe it's through the popular media, which seems these days, when it does mention a Christian or portray one, to do so in terms of ridicule. Whether it's humorously, in terms of a Father Ted or a, a Vicar of Dibley, or in terms of a Dot Cotton, so often the Christian is the butt of the joke and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, are we really that feeble and stupid and silly and ridiculous? The second tactic the enemy uses, as well as instilling doubt, notice, is instilling fear. Instilling fear. You know, this is the left and right jabs of the devil. If his left hand doesn't get you, maybe the right hand will. If laughing at you doesn't work, then he'll try to frighten you. It seems that in Nehemiah's case, the ridicule wasn't effective. So the enemy moves to plan B. And this really is no laughing matter. In verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Sanballat and his coalition are ready to resort to violence. Verse 11 tells us that they plan a surprise attack. And before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. It was unfortunate for the enemy, however, though frightening to God's people, that news of this leaked out to some in the Lord's camp. You see there in verse 12 that some who lived near the enemy, who were in their locality nearby, they overheard these, these plans. And they went back 10 times, it tells us, reporting that an attack was imminent. These folks were petrified at the prospect of attack. You have to remember that the, the individuals who were rebuilding this wall, not only were they not builders initially, but they were not soldiers. They were, as we heard last week, perfumers and, and, and merchants. And it was bad enough that they were having to up their tools to build a wall. But they hadn't planned on getting their throats cut in the process. And so at this point, we see that the enemy is making his play. While at this instance, he has not yet resorted to physical violence. Nevertheless, he's using these psychological tactics, these mental war games to discourage God's people, to frighten God's people, and to stop God's people from working. You see, that was the aim of the enemy here. The aim was that the people of God, through one way or another, would give up and would down their tools. And at this stage, things were hanging in the balance. Maybe as what happened in the time of Ezra, this wall, the building of it, would simply cease. Friends, God's enemy has some really powerful tactics to use against us. God's enemy has got some game. 
And we must recognize that the threat around us and to us is very real. Even the seemingly strongest of us can be discouraged. You don't know how many Christians, or maybe you do, who seem to be strong in their Christian faith and an enemy attack seem to just blow them out the water and they're no longer coming to church. They seem to be no longer walking with the Lord. How many churches seem to be suddenly torpedoed by an attack of the enemy? A church split. Some radical division as the enemy has found his way in. We must be aware of the enemy's tactics. Days in which we live today, I think we're seeing that increasingly. I think we're becoming more aware of the enemy, aren't we? The enemy's getting a little more obvious in what he's doing. In days where Tony Blair this week commented, speaking of the aggressive secularism that Christians particularly fall foul of. He was referring to the five-year-old who was punished for speaking about Jesus in their class. Can you imagine that? I've got a five-year-old myself, you know, getting into trouble for speaking about Jesus, who he prays to at night. And he was talking about the story of the nurse who was suspended for praying with a patient. And he said, I quote, I hope and believe these stories of people not being allowed to express their Christianity are exceptional or the result of individual ludicrous decisions. The problem is that as more of these incidents come out of the woodwork, they seem to be neither exceptional and nor do many within the British public regard them as ludicrous. Christianity is no longer simply being laughed at. It's increasingly being legislated against with the threat, at least, of hostility. So what do we do when opposed? What do we do when the enemy comes on strong like that? Maybe as a church, as we're coming forward to this Tuesday and this important meeting, maybe we need to be especially prepared for the enemy. Maybe as an individual, we need to personally face up to this reality of the enemy. How do we respond? Well, our second heading is the defensive measures of the Lord's people. The defensive measures of the Lord's people. Now, just imagine, imagine that you were the commander of an ancient city. Imagine that you were in charge of one of these ancient cities, you know, with the walls around and soldiers and that kind of thing. And somebody comes rushing into your little office in the city and says to you that he spotted the enemy army on the horizon. They're coming. They're coming to the city. What would you do? Well, you don't just say to them, that's an interesting bit of information. Thanks very much. Go back to watching television. You immediately put in place security measures. You get everyone outside the city, inside the city. If you've got a drawbridge, you pull it up. You get your armed men on the wall. You put in place a series of defensive measures. Now, of course, Nehemiah, in his case, had a bit of a problem because the city that he was in, some of the walls were still broken down. There were gaps in the walls. But nevertheless, he does take some defensive measures. He does do as much as he can do. And I want to suggest that there are two sides to this. There's a, a very human side of it, and there's a divine side of it when we think of defensive measures. Let's begin with the human. 
First of all, he puts the people on a state of watchfulness. The people must watch. We must watch as a church, as individuals, for the enemy. Watching means that from a human perspective, with all the resources that we can muster, we are as vigilant as we can be, that we prepare as much as we can for the onslaught of the enemy. That's what it means to watch, to be vigilant. If we are to unpack that a little bit, it means probably a couple of other things. If we're going to watch, it means that we must have our weaponry in hand. As Pip was reminding us in verse 18, it stands to reason that if the enemy army is coming and, and you know, they've got their spears and their swords and their bows, uh, it might be a good idea for us to get ours out of the cupboard. And so in verse 19, uh, verse 13, sorry, the people get tooled up with swords and spears and bows. And in verse 16, they, they pull out the, the defensive armory, shields and armor. They need defensive armory and they need offensive weapons. Now, some of them, verse 16, wore more than others. Because the trouble was they were still trying to rebuild the city. And so it depended how much you needed to use your hands and how much you know, weight you could carry as to how much weaponry you had. But even the builders uh, who could or had to use both of their hands all of the time, they still had a sword at their side. Everyone had something. The principle is that if we are going to watch, we need to make sure we have our weapons. Spiritually speaking, Ephesians 6, which reminds us that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We are fighting against spiritual forces, and therefore we have to, to get on the spiritual weapons and armory. We need the belt of truth buckled around our waist. When those lies and those doubts come in, we need to bring out the truth of God. We need the breastplate of righteousness. For you see, often what the devil tries to do, as again, it was mentioned in the children's talk, the devil tries to tell us we're no use, that God would never accept us, that we're so unrighteous that we could never be friends with God. And we need to remind ourselves that we have the righteousness of Christ as our, our breastpiece. And we need to have the shield of faith to protect us against those arrows of doubt. And most of all, we need to have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Just a few weeks ago, children's talk here in the pulpit. We saw that uh, inflatable sword. And we heard about the sword of the Spirit. We've heard about it again this morning. I remember the last line that Paul said. Uh, he said, keep your sword at your side. Don't go anywhere without it. Keep your sword at your side. Don't go anywhere without it. Was it not Jesus in the wilderness who, when he was attacked, wielded the sword? When the devil came, three times over, the devil tempted. Three times over, the devil pronged. And three times, Jesus parried using the word of God. He said, have you not read? This is our weapon, folks, as we are attacked. As we are told things that are not true, we take this out and we remind ourselves of the truth about ourselves and about God. 
So first, we must have our weaponry in hand. Next notice, verse 13, we must have our weak spots guarded. Did you notice that Nehemiah, verse 13, stations people behind the lowest points in the wall, where they, where they were most open? Some of the sections were probably built up almost to the top. Maybe some were finished. But there were other places where it was still pretty much a pile of rubble. With a hop, skip, and a jump, the enemy probably could have got in. And so Nehemiah particularly puts troops and infantry in those areas. He defends the weak spots. And there is, of course, a principle in this for us. We must watch our weak spots too. Maybe it's personal weak spots. The devil does not seek to attack your strengths very often. You know, he doesn't go for the high walls in your life. He goes for the low places. You say, it seems as if I'm always facing the same temptation. It seems as if I'm always succumbing to the same temptation. That's no surprise. Those are the areas where the enemy will attack you. Maybe it's a weak spot of pride. Maybe it's a weak spot of bickering. And the devil will find ways to lead you into sin in those areas. Or maybe it is weak spots in a church. You know, churches too have their weak spots. Maybe there's some issue in a church, a subject, and it's the tinderbox issue. And it's the thing that you can guarantee the enemy will use to divide the church. It's an issue. Maybe there are two ministries in the church, and there always seems to be sort of friction between these two groups of people. You can guarantee that the enemy will attack that area again and again. He wants to cause friction and divide the church. So we must be aware of our vulnerabilities. We must pray about those areas. And as we do this, we need to do this collectively too. This is the third thing. We must be watching with our friends, fighting beside us. Did you notice how often in this section, the community aspect of watching is emphasized? In verses 13 and 14, first the families are grouped together. They're grouped together. They're not just building and watching on their own, but they're grouped by families. The reason was obvious. Even if you were not a soldier, you're going to fight for your brother, your sister, your son, or your daughter, aren't you? You're going to give your best. And so he gathers them together as families. Then in verse 16, Nehemiah organizes things so that half of the men are working and half of the men are guarding. You know, this must have been a tremendous thing. There you are. You're building your section of the wall. You've just got one measly sword by your side. And you've got to concentrate on what is in front of you. You're probably not feeling very confident about that situation with the enemy lurking. But listen, there's a guy standing at your back and he's tooled up to the nines and he's watching out for you and he's ready to defend you if necessary. In fact, verse 23 tells us that those who lived out with Jerusalem decided to leave their homes and stay inside Jerusalem 24 seven. They slept there at night. They wanted to swell the numbers. They wanted to, as a community, watch over their brothers. And then in verses 18 to 20, you get this instruction about the trumpet. And this trumpet too is about us fighting together. 
The idea was that if any part of the wall was attacked, if it was your part, then you blew the trumpet. And wherever the trumpet was blown, people from other parts of the wall would rush to your part and they would fight together with you. These are beautiful pictures of the truth that we do fight against the enemy, but we do not fight alone. We need to fight as a unit. We need to fight as, as a team. This means that I don't just watch over myself, but I, I watch over those around me, those in my fellowship group, those in the ministry that I'm involved in. And, and, and you know, one of the problems with this is very often people are under attack, but they don't blow the trumpet. And, and you need to be aware of that. If you are facing a spiritual attack and you're deeply discouraged in your faith, or you're frightened about what the enemy seems to be doing in your life, in your, in your workplace, in your family, you need to blow the trumpet. You need to let other people be aware of that so that they can stand with you. I'm not suggesting you buy a physical trumpet. You know, the phone will do, the email. Speak to someone. Use the old method of actually speaking to someone after the service this morning. Speak to one of the elders one of the pastoral team, it is their job to be watching over you and to pray for you. So we watch with our weaponry in hand. We, we watch over our weak spots and, and we watch together as a community. But notice something very important. And we're running out of time, but I'm going to labor on this just a wee bit before we finish. It is not just what we do. It is what God does that is ultimately important. We must watch, but we must also pray. Prayer reflects that fact that we are trusting in the Lord ultimately. It's the old phrase, isn't it? Watch and pray. That's what they did, watch and pray. I think my favorite verse in this passage is verse nine. But we prayed to our God and we posted the guard. Isn't that brilliant? We did our part, but hey, we prayed to the Lord to do what only God can do. What was the old phrase? Was it in the, the war? Some people used to say it. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. And so Nehemiah, notice this, the first thing he does in verse four, before anything else, before anything else, is he prays. He prays. He prays in a way that we often don't today. He prays for the justice of God upon his enemies. He prays for the vindication of God's name and God's people in light of their enemies. If you've been reading through the Psalms, you'll have read, I'm sure, in a few days, some of these kinds of prayers. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. And here is, a, is another one in Nehemiah. And it is not a case of personal vengeance. In fact, this is the very opposite of personal vengeance. This is us saying to the Lord, we're not going to take personal revenge, but Lord, it's up to you to vindicate your name. It's leaving to God the prerogative to deal ultimately with his enemies. And we know that at the end of, the, of time, the devil and his, foe, and his allies will be condemned at the wrapping up of history. More importantly, I think we learn this principle again of prayer first. Peter reminded us last week, and I hope it sticks in all of our minds, that prayer is not the least thing we can do. It is the most we can do. It's the most we can do. Because it recognizes that 
supremely, God can rescue us from our enemies. Yes, we organize. Yes, we post the guard. Yes, we motivate the troops. But at the end of the day, Nehemiah believes that unless the Lord builds the city, the laborers labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, you know, the watchmen, they're standing guard in vain. He reminds the people of this in verse 14. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And in verse 20, our God will fight for us. That's our supreme confidence. You know, sometimes you face situations in your life and you've employed all the strategies and you still feel outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, completely out of your depth. Maybe some of you are feeling in that situation this morning, just overwhelmed. But you know, the, the wonderful assurance ultimately is that it is not your strategies and what you can do that will help you succeed in the end. It will be God who will fight for you. If you are facing a Goliath, you can say like David, the battle is the Lord's. And if we have God in our corner, the enemy is always dead meat. That's the principle. Warren Wearsby gives this wise counsel. He says this, when we face a situation that creates fear in our hearts, we must remind ourselves of the greatness of God. If we walk by sight and view God through the problems, we will fail. But if we look at the problem through the greatness of God, we will have confidence and succeed. So in conclusion, friends, very simple message this morning. Watch and pray. Because by watching and praying, you will achieve something even more important, and that is you will continue building. You will continue working. That's the reason we defend ourselves, so that we can do ministry. In Nehemiah's case, the enemies huffed and puffed, but they couldn't blow the wall down. You see the, the continuation of the work in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And in verse 21, so we continued the work with half the men holding the spears from the light of first dawn till the stars came out. Indeed, you almost get the impression that the people are working even harder than before. Oh, you know, when you're on the battlefield, it sharpens the mind and it motivates you to the work. Maybe you're here this morning and I don't want to forget you. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe you're here today and you don't believe in the Lord Jesus. And I want to say to you that if you are in that position, then you are an enemy of God. You are an enemy of God. Maybe you wouldn't readily associate yourself with these people in Nehemiah 4, but you are an enemy of God in that case. You see, you're either an enemy of God or you're in the army of God. There's only those two options. You're either seeking to dismantle the wall or you're seeking to rebuild the wall. And the only way you can become a builder and a soldier is to first of all be a forgiven sinner. To recognize that Jesus died on a cross. Do you know what? He died for his enemies. That's what's so astounding about it. And he shed his blood on a cross. He laid down his life for his friends in order that there might be peace and an armistice between God and us. You know, God in his great justice and holiness should simply wipe us out along with the devil and the rest. 
But the mercy of God is this, and the grace of God is this. We can be rescued from that wrath through Jesus Christ. I hope you'll sign up for the Lord's army today. And if you're one of the troops, remember, it's a war zone out there. Watch and pray. Let's sing together our closing hymn.